0: Talking books on Newstalk 106 to 108.
1: I think the restaurant helps us understand inequality in a in a way that we usually don't understand it. Uh, You know, if you buy your new smartphone. Uh, then you're going to realize, you know, that somewhere in a, in a mine in Africa, you know, people are going to be exploited because, you know, for the, you know, the things that go into your smartphone. You buy a new, you know, a t-shirt or a pair of jeans, you know, people in Bangladesh are going to suffer because your jeans or new, new t-shirts is going to be, you know, very cheap. But that's all, you know, thousands of miles away. You could ignore this, right? If you're in a restaurant, um, you, you know that the people separated from me just by a door in the kitchen are, are probably going to be, you know, working very hard, you know, sweating, toiling away. They're not going to be well paid. You know, the, the cheaper the restaurant is, and most people want cheap restaurants, uh, the less money they're going to get paid in the kitchen. And so, you know, inequality, uh, I think, is something that the restaurant shows us. Um, And it just, it it sums it up. It's like a mirror um, where you see the the inequality of our society. And that's what makes it so, so important.
0: Sharp knives, of course, are the secret of a successful restaurant. The words of British novelist, essayist and journalist George Orwell from his memoir down and out in Paris and London, published in 1933. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to delve deep into the hot... Dirty and complex world of the restaurant business with author, cultural historian, and critic Christoph Ribat, whose latest book, In the Restaurant Society in Four Courses, has just been published by Pushkin Press. Where Christoph argues, Behind the kitchen door, there are breadline wages, incidents of physical violence, and immigrants without papers who are mercilessly exposed to the whims of their employers. So how important is a restaurant to cultural history? What makes for the perfect meal? And what exactly is techno-emotional cuisine?
1: My name is Christoph Ribat. I teach at the University of Paderborn in Germany. I'm trying to balance the teaching and the writing part of my life, as well as the family part of my life, of course. And uh, when I'm writing, what I'm curious about is really, well, cultural history, but really the cultural history of the everyday. So so what's going on in places like restaurants, on the street, uh, on basketball courts, uh, that's what, what my type of cultural history is all about. So my latest book is called In the Restaurant, Society in Four Courses. It's a book that surprisingly, or some people are surprised that it's not really all that much about food, but that it deals more with people in restaurants, with people working in restaurants, spending money in restaurants. And and I'm trying to talk about that much more than just focusing on the food itself.
0: What a curious and stimulating read Christoph. Um, in the restaurant I have to say I learnt a lot with this book but also how you um, probed the, the social landscape uh, labour relations um, exploitation and all the issues that happen in terms of power structures I suppose in restaurants it was uh, it made for superb reading and um, whether you're a food lover or have a curious interest in society and how it moves and how it stretches uh, through the centuries I think anyone um, interested in those themes will be uh, would be fascinated by your book. I might start with a big wide open question if that's okay. Do you think food is a new religion? Like clearly it's a, for some people it's a status symbol what they eat, you know, fancy fish and so on. Some people would use food I suppose as a substitute for sex, others maybe for other areas that are a bit empty in their life. But do you think we can say that food is a new religion?
1: Sometimes it feels that way, and sometimes restaurants seem like churches and and people entering restaurants seem to be ready you know, for a religious experience. I can't really explain expect- it maybe because it's, well, as we're looking at our society, um, you know, all sorts of institutions get less and less important. You know, the church gets, gets less important, uh, political parties, um, clubs, uh, you name it. Uh, and it seems as if the consumer experience seems to be like the, the only experience left to us. And so maybe that's why, you know, what we consume, what we eat, what we taste, what we feed into our bodies, maybe that's because, you know, why this is so important to us these days.
0: Do you think you can get to know a person or certainly get a feel for a person by their taste and, I suppose, curiosity for food and whether they're willing to be adventurous or not or the types of restaurants or cafes they frequent? Do you think that's a window into the soul, so to speak?
1: It's certainly a window into their soul social um, class and uh, social status into what they think they deserve and and, uh, and what their status is. And I think anyone who's ever entered a restaurant and found themselves maybe, uh, you know, thinking, oh, this is a, a bit too posh for us. You know, <laughs> we're not in the right place. <laughs> or maybe thinking, you know, this is a bit too trashy for us. So it's like you walk into a restaurant and you immediately you kind of get a, it's like looking into a mirror and the restaurant tells you who you are in terms of status, in terms of taste in terms of your cultural needs.
0: You describe the restaurant as a hot pot of modernity, where experiences can reach boiling point. And, you know, for anyone who's worked in a restaurant, I worked, I know, in uh, Australia, America, in England, um, in different types of restaurants. Some were very classy, the others were a little less than. But they're not exactly the most relaxing places for people who work there.
1: No, no, no. It's, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, the kitchen is hot, you know, by definition, of course, but also for the wait staff. I mean, you know, in, in, in restaurants, they're very crowded. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like a sport. You know, it's incredibly hectic, uh, and, and people literally bump into each other. And that's really what got me interested in the restaurant, in looking not just at the food that's on the plate, but also, you know, how do people bump into each other? Uh, people working in restaurants, but also the customers. That's really what got me excited about this project.
0: So how do you define a restaurant? Because, Christophe, for some people it's a a chilled out beach shack somewhere in Latin America or in India or whatever. Others want the more formal French place settings and so on, you know, all very silver service. So how do you see it or how do you understand it?
1: Yeah, I was sure I was going to get in trouble with my definition because I'm working with a kind of open definition of a restaurant. So I'm I'm also including like fast food places and cafeterias and other places. And of course, there's certain gourmets who would say, "Wait a second, you know, it's just you know uh, a certain you know type of elegance or sophistication." Well, it's a little bit like you know, like the fine arts. You know, I, I put a you know, if I put a pile of junk uh, on the street and I declare this you know, as a work of art, you know, I, as long as other people think it's a work of art, then and I'm going to be right you know about junk being art and the same is true for the restaurant you know if I you know, open my garage and I just you know put a pot of soup in there and sell the soup to people and I put a sign up restaurant you know if it works that's the restaurant so that's what I was trying to do with my history you know and try to be as open as possible and not just t- talk about the three star places
0: Could it be argued though Christoph that a restaurant provides a refuge if you will a temporary home for those who go to it certainly if it's a regular place that you go to like you people exchange ideas in restaurants they fall in love in restaurants they break up in restaurants they do a lot of things but could you say that you know we go in there to be i suppose looked after cared for and that kind of sense of well-being
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, that's how it, kind of how it started 250 years ago in Paris. You know, before the restaurant, there was people kind of, I and mean, people obviously went out when they were traveling, but they were all sitting at the same table, like the same long table, and you couldn't decide like who you'd sit next to. And the modern restaurant in the late 18th century, you got your t- a table for yourself. So that's probably the key point. You know, in the restaurant, you get to sit kind of with the person you want to sit next to or you want to sit with. And so it kind of creates this kind of this home away from home. Yeah, that's what the restaurant does for you. Do
0: you think, though, that the world of gastronomy goes as a kind of a window into social progress? You know, as I said in my instructions, you know, we get power structures, we get class systems, we get all about wage controls and, 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 and labour relations. We get a lot of different things. We get technology. We get so much.
1: Oh, Absolutely. You know, one of the most uh, surprising and really this, uh, one of the saddest facts that I've found out that in the luxury uh, restaurants around 1900, cooks, um, they had a life expectancy of about 40 years, and many of them died of malnourishment. You know, the cooks in the restaurants, it was one of the toughest jobs uh, 100 years ago. Incredible. And I still, I still think that it's the case that in the restaurants, And there are people sitting, dining comfortably and and sometimes in luxury and just a few meters away, you know, just separated by a door. There are people, you know, working, uh, you know, really for incredible uh, conditions and not getting a lot of money at all. And it's it's like the inequalities of our society are just, you know, you, you get those in a nutshell in the restaurant.
0: So can you describe for me maybe, let's say, um, a restaurant in, let's say, France or Germany or whatever in the late 19th century? Like who was going into them? Obviously, those who had a bit more money than, than most. But how exclusive were they and, and what did people do?
1: Well, for sure, the restaurant and the luxury hotel, those, that was like the place for the for the moneyed elite. And the strange thing was that wherever you went, whether in England or Germany or France or the United States, you always got the same food. So it was kind of dependable, but also must have been very boring. And there was a lot of uh, flambéing going on. So, uh, you know, the waiter would always set something on fire for you. That was sort of the luxury hotel restaurant around 1900. And then it changed as the 20th. Century began as you know the middle classes had a little bit more money to spend. More and more restaurants would develop for people who were you know, not the select few.
0: I found it very interesting um, when you mentioned that you know in the first um, or the early restaurants that people didn't actually eat that much. It wasn't cool or seen as socially advantageous. Let's say to look a bit hungry and to eat everything on your plate. That they kind of nibbled away uh, and so on, but nothing major.
1: Yeah, in the, in the very first restaurants, you get you really this. Tiny bowl of soup, and that was it. And uh, you know, imagine—you know, this was in Paris, late 18th century, and people were going hungry, like on the streets. You know, people were just—you know—yearning for bread, and they started the revolution just for bread, right? But the, the elite was sitting in these restaurants and just in you know, a little bit of soup, not more, because they were so dainty and so fragile, and, and that's what made them—you know—look like the, the elite. So you went to the restaurant in order to show how privileged you were.
0: You bring up a very interesting lady um, in the book. Um, I think her name was uh, Frances Donovan. She wrote The Woman Who Waits and she was quite the pioneering sociologist and she was the first person to do a scientific investigation about waitresses and she looked at the, the waitresses their identity, their kind of status within society, their sexuality all different types of stuff. She had a very tough life and you know she seemed to have always been on the margins so can you talk to me a little bit about her and how Important her work is to cultural history.
1: Oh, she, she's wonderful. I really fell in love with her as I was writing her story. Well, she was a very bad waitress and a very good writer, and and that combination was was wonderful because she she started working in a in a Chicago restaurant, and she. Got fired all the time because you know she would spill soup and other you know on guests and she would crash into other waitresses and not really a very bad waitress but her observations on what's going on in a restaurant and how how waitresses work and how they're always also selling themselves kind of as as uh, you know sexual presences in the restaurant and she made these wonderful observations and wrote this really really the first modern study of the waitress which is a wonderful though forgotten book. it's just a wonderful window into, into the modern city, into, you know, Chicago, the hustle bustle of, of, of the big city in the early 20th century. And she, she was just a wonderful observer.
0: Why do you think it is so, Christoph, that, you know, whether it's a field of sociology or whether it's a field of broad-based academia, didn't think it was worthwhile looking at the role of the waitress in society and what she or he was doing? Why do you think that is, that they were kind of almost systematically ignored from areas related to how society moved? moves and develops. It doesn't seem to make sense.